Thank you, Joe, and praise team. That was great. It's awesome to be able to worship the Lord in different ways. We do that through song. We do it through testimony. We do it through the Word. And we want to pay attention to the Word because God tells us to. <laughs> um, take your Bibles and go to Second Peter in the first chapter. Second Peter chapter 1. You remember where that book is? Second Peter 1. Why don't we have a word of prayer before we start this morning? Lord, we just want to commit our time to you over the next few minutes, and we want to understand better what you say, so that when we are uh, bombarded with questions, when we feel as if we're being suffocated by the world, that it wouldn't be our wisdom that we rely on, but your word. And so teach us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I played one year of football, and the first carry I ever made as a running back, I was drilled, and it hurt. It hurt bad. I just remember getting the call and carrying the ball through the line of scrimmage and getting creamed. And I remember laying on the bottom and having a bunch of guys on me. I mean a bunch of guys. And I couldn't breathe. I felt helpless. All I remember was I wanted them to go away. I wanted that pressure to be off of me. I felt like that these guys were suffocating me. That literally the life was being drawn out of me. I felt helpless. And it wasn't until it felt like an eternity before those guys, before that pile of guys got off of me. Have you ever been piled on before? You know, maybe you've never carried a football through the line of scrimmage and been hit and had a pile of people on you and felt like you were suffocating, literally, but figuratively, I bet a lot of you feel like at times you're being suffocated by the world and its view of the, world, of the Word of God. That the world is piling on us as Christians that... They look at Scripture not as God's Word, not as truth, but they look at Scripture like it's just a made-up fairy tale that has no substance. And I want to tell you, I really believe the way the culture is going, there are going to be more and more of you that feel like literally someone or many are piling on top of you. And you're going to have to defend what you know to be the truth. Now the question becomes, are you ready to defend the truth? Do you know God's Word? Do you know the truth? Um, it's one thing to open your Bible. It's one thing to read the Bible. But it's another thing to be able to defend God's Word. You know what's great? Is that um, it defends itself. <laughs> You don't have to come up with your own wisdom, right? But God's Word is the power source. Um, these readers that Peter is writing to um, may have felt like they were being piled upon um, by these false teachers who were throwing accusations 
against Christ and specifically against his coming and who thought the word of God was merely uh, concocted stories or myths or fairy tales. And Peter is very, very careful to argue the point that it is definitely God's word. That at the end of the day, as great as his experience was on that Mount of, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, what rules the day is the word of God. And you're going to see this is a very awesome section of Scripture. It's going to take us two weeks, probably three, to get through verse 21. It's wonderful. There's so much to, to feed upon. And you're going to walk out going, man, I need to chew on this a little bit. And that's okay. I want you to. I want you to go out and chew on it a little bit. Now, we begin in verse 16. Oh, my goodness. Lord, please. Verse 16. Look down in your Bibles. How many of you have your Bibles open? Right? Good, great. Verse 16. There it goes. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Now, if you skip down and go to the end of the verse, it says, But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, there's a clause in there that, that is very important to deal with. But he, first of all, tells us, by way of testimony that we did not follow myths. And so I want to make some just initial observations before we get to our outline uh, this morning. Notice that second word for we. Who's the we? Well, you have to ask yourself that question. In the context of the passage, I believe the we directly points to Peter, James, and John. However, based on the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, but Peter may have had in mind more than just James and John. He might have had in mind all of the apostles, right? But he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power. And in the Greek language, that little word, the, right? That article uh, is very, very important But because it, it emphasizes not only the power, but the coming, right? It applies to both. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so the question becomes, well, when did he do that? We're going to see this morning when he did that. Then he says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What in the world is Peter talking about? Right? When you read that question, I mean, that verse, you have to say, well, what's he talking about? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, the great part is we get to study it together. All right? And I have an outline for you in, in the bulletin uh, this morning. And we want to focus, first of all, on Peter's testimony Peter's testimony all right now notice it says in verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised tales now I gave you a couple of definitions there they're important for you to write I'm not going to go through them verbatim you can write as I'm talking all right but notice he says he uses the word follow now when you think of Peter and you think of follow what comes to your mind immediately class Right? You go back to the beginning when Peter was first called by the Lord Jesus. What did he say? What did Jesus say to Peter and the other disciples? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the word follow is a critical word because Peter lined up with, and so did the other apostles, the teachings of Christ. They accepted what Christ said as authority. As authority. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales. 
Now that's an interesting phrase. As, as you can see by definition, uh, the focus of the definition is stories centered around human wisdom, skillfully devised stories. I like what um, William Vine writes. Don't put that slide up yet, Ron. <laughs> I've got two points about William Vine. This thing's not working. I'm sorry, class. Uh, William Vine, in commenting on the word myths, here that Peter uses, writes, the Greek and Roman world abounded in stories about the gods. Mere human speculations that tried to explain the world and its origins. Um, and they were, Peter in his day, just like they're doing in our day, outside forces are trying to do what? Discredit Christianity. And that's what they were trying to do. He goes on to write, William Vine does. Now you can go to that next slide. It's working now? It is working now, praise the Lord. All right, William Vine goes on to say, the essential nature of myths is that they represent man, listen to this, man-made substitutes for God's breathed word. Well, that was going on in the Greek and Roman culture. Is that going on today? Absolutely it is. It's going on all around us. They are humanly concocted stories that have no basis in fact. And so if you just do a study of the Greek gods, um, well, I feel for you. But I just wanted to give you one example of one, uh, one god that they relied on. And um, his name was Apollo. All right. And so Greek mythology said that Apollo was the god of light. Now listen to this. It was his job to pull the sun across the sky in his four-horse chariot every day. And you know what? All I could come up with after I read that was baloney. No. We, ha we have, in fact, in Genesis, the first chapter, um, if you want to turn there, you can. In Genesis, the first chapter, I'll just read it to you if you don't want to turn. Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said... God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night and he made the stars also and God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth God did what he placed them God's the creator of the heavens and the earth verse 19 says and there was evening and there was morning a fourth day and I love what Job says Job 26 uh, verse 10 he says he referring to God God marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. Who does? God does. And yet, listen, Peter's audience, these guys are facing. This is what they're facing in that first century as believers. They're facing the ridicule of those who would dispute what God had already said. And so anticipating this, Peter writes this very important verse, verse 16. All right? So you have Peter's testimony. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. Now, we go from Peter's testimony to Peter's message. Look in verse 16. 
For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Now here's that phrase in verse 16. Look down in your Bibles. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So not only does Peter talk about the testimony of the apostles, but he talks about the message of the apostles. What's the message of the apostles? Notice the word made known is very important here in the text. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known. By definition, it speaks of a completed action in the past. It's truth that was hidden, but that was made known. And in context, I want, I want you to look at what he's talking about here. This is very, very important. Verse 16. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of the first coming of Christ, do you think of power? That's not the word that I think of. That's not the word that Scripture, right? Scripture says that the Lord came as what? He came as a suffering servant. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Huh. That certainly doesn't sound like power, does it? No, Mark ten forty five says, For even the Son of Man did not, what, come to be served, but to what? Serve! So there's a distinction between, and this is very, very important, there's a distinction between the first and second coming of Christ. And so Peter is telling his audience, look, we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already given you that revelation. And so the student in us says, well, where was this, Peter? When did you make this known to us? Because now remember, they are being attacked. And you're going to see in just a moment, they're being attacked specifically as it related to the second coming of Christ. Um, well, here we go. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 4, verse 13. Look at these verses with me. Peter, in the first letter to these believers, writes about the coming revelation of Jesus Christ, his second coming. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 1 says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that last phrase is hugely important. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When will Jesus Christ come in his glory with power? Second coming, all right? And so he's talking about that. I love the way Peter um, highlights that hope piece because if you study 1 Peter, you know that this was written to a bunch of suffering servants. They were suffering for the cause of Christ. And so he, he tells them, look, fix your hope on what's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 13 Peter also talks about the second coming of Christ. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. In other words, don't be surprised at trials. Any of you have trials in your life today? Sitting here, you have the trial you're going through, right? There's trials and sufferings in people's lives all the time. The unbelieving world reacts differently, don't they? In fact, the unbelieving world does not know how to handle trials and tribulations. In fact, a lot of the unbelieving world, when it comes to trials and tribulations, they look 
to find comfort in maybe alcohol, right? They, they need distraction from the reality of what's going on in their lives. Guys, I've got good news for you that no matter the trial that you're going through, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have hope. You have hope. You say, well, I need something more than that. That's what the Lord's given us. He's given us hope. People are looking for medication to cope with trials and tribulations. The Lord gave us the medicine. He gave us hope. And that hope's in him. We can't lose sight of that. That's, that hope is in him. And that's what Peter writes about. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. <laughs> um, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that suffering goes along with the Christian life. Right? It's just a part of the Christian life. And here's the reaction of some, Well, that's not fair. And we sang this morning, I was thinking as Joe was talking, man, I deserve hell. I'm going to get heaven all because of his grace. So I look at this and I go, well, yeah, this, this life does have trials and there are tribulations. But you know what? The Lord's already won the victory. <laughs> He's already won. All right. I, I just love that thought. Thank you, Joe, for sharing that this morning. Well, he writes at the end of the verse, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on doing what? Keep on rejoicing. And, and don't you know, when they get the letter and they, they're reading it to the people, they're like, what? Keep on doing what? <laughs> keep on rejoicing. And by the way, rejoicing, there's a difference between joy and happiness. You understand that? Um, I'm not happy all the time. Last night, I wasn't happy to see my hogs get obliterated, having to change my allegiance from Arkansas to Navy all in one day. There's a difference, right, between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on circumstance. And there are a lot of circumstances that go on in my life that, that don't necessarily bring me happiness. But listen, in the midst of those circumstances... And I mean the hard things in life. There can still be rejoicing. Now I want you to notice that though the rejoicing, guys, listen, we think of rejoicing as maybe, I don't, I don't know what you think, but I think a lot of people think of rejoicing as, yeah, yeah, man, I'm going through all. Man, listen, rejoicing has an object. Are you listening to me? Joy has an object. And that object is who? It's Christ. It's Christ. So he says, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory. Wow, Peter's saying, look, keep on doing that. But at the revelation of his glory. Guys, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back in his glory. He says, you may rejoice with exultation. Does everybody believe that? (laughs) Does everybody believe that? I mean, you, you, you think about what these believers were going through. Everybody didn't believe that. There were mockers. There were those people who were deceivers, who were mocking them, who were, right, I gave you that illustration in the beginning, who were piling on, who were saying, ah, this isn't true. This is a myth. This is a fable. And so in anticipation of that, Peter says, hey, look, whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't follow those fables. 
We didn't follow those myths. You say, who were these scoffers? Well, glad you asked. Second Peter, look at this, Second Peter chapter 3, because in the context of verse 16, what's being attacked is the second coming of Christ. And Peter's about to tell these guys, hey, look, we were eyewitnesses of that time, of his glory. It's awesome. This is an awesome text. All right, but look what it says. Chapter 3, verses 3, and then part of verse 4. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with mocking. Following, look at this, this is how he describes them. Following after their own lust or their own desires and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? And so, <laughs> I mean, don't you see, Peter has to encourage these guys. Hey, look, you're on the right track. The word mockers there is a plural noun, which means scoffer or deceiver. Do you know that this same terminology is used in Jude 18? Jude 18. Notice the way it's described here. Same issue. Look at verse 18. Now, you know that Jude, right, it's just one chapter. So when I say 18, that's verse 18, okay? He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the who? By the apostles of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers. Now look at the way he describes these guys, right? I mean, how would you like to be introduced like this? Following after their own godly lust. And look at this description. These are the ones who cause divisions. Now, I was thinking about that. I couldn't help but think about the doctrine of hell. You know that the predominant thought today is that hell doesn't even exist. And even if it does exist, no one's going there. So I'm just a simple guy and I'm going, well, hmm. Hell sure is spoken about a lot in the Bible. Would you agree with that? Um, well, okay, so if there's no hell, then what about heaven? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but if there is no hell, there is no heaven. Well, no, because the Bible speaks about not just one of them, but what? Both of them. They are real places. Guys, this is a good time to interject. I hope that you know that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you know? I mean, you know. When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, Paul writes this dissertation in Romans on man's condition. And at the end of it, it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man needed help. <laughs> he needed that life draft who, who was that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bridged that gap between God and man that was called sin. And you know how he did it? The cross. And you know the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 that Jesus Christ died for our what? Sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised the third day according to what? The scriptures. So I don't care what Rob Bell says. His word is no different. I'm just a man too. 
But you know what? I can point back to the word of God. And that's exactly what Peter's going to get across to these guys. Listen, don't rely on us. It's not about us. It's about the word of God that was given to us. Well, he describes them as the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. That's strong right there, devoid of the Spirit. We say that as believers, who leads us and who guides us? The Spirit. These are the ones devoid of the Spirit. Well, you say, are there really people like that who mock the second coming of Christ? Do we have any proof in history? Glad you asked. I've got one example I wanted to give to you. I mean, I could give you a bunch, but I wanted to give you one. Any of you ever heard of um, Bertrand Russell? Any of you heard? All right, so he was a British philosopher. He was a writer. Um, lived in the eight, uh, late 1800s and 1900s. Died in 1970, I believe. Listen to what he wrote in an essay that he entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. <laughs> that, that's the title of his essay. He says, Why I'm Not a Christian. Um, he says, Because when he went to the Gospels, Jesus said that his second coming would occur in the lifetime of some of his listeners, and clearly it didn't. He concludes from this that Jesus' prediction was incorrect. Incorrect. And thus that Jesus, quote, was not so wise as some other people have been, and he was certainly not superlatively wise. In fact, he would go on to deny the very doctrine of hell that I just talked about. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Well, I look at it like, well, how in the world do I deserve heaven only by grace? My loving God is gracious. If I believe in Christ as my Savior, I'm, I'm saved, I'm His. And so he wrote here in his essay about this particular verse that we're going to look at. <laughs> because he, he goes back, if you go back to, to Matthew 16, there is a verse, I need you to turn, I need you to see this, all right? I need you to see this like right now. Matthew 16. This is very, very critical. All right, Matthew 16. Then I want to take you to a chart real quick. Matthew 16. Well, let's start in verse 21. He says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For every who wishes to, wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at verses 28, 7 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
and will recompense every man according to his deeds. Verse 28, here it is. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, what in the world? They would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Question. Did Peter, James, and John see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration? The answer is yes. They saw something yet future. I'm going to show that to you. We won't get to it today. But I'm going to show that to you. The Bible tells us they saw the Son of Man in his glory. He was transformed before them. So when Peter writes to these believers, do you see, man, they got a real issue on their hands. They're being attacked. In a very important, a very important doctrine, they're being attacked. We need to understand. You know, there's some that argue, say, "Well, we don't really need to understand the end times." What, what's so big about that? Well, my goodness, you start in the Old Testament, you go right through the New Testament, through the Book of Revelation. Prophecy is all over the place, especially as it relates to the second coming of Christ. I wanted to show you this timeline, all right? Because Peter's talking about a specific time as it relates to the majesty or the glory of the Lord. You have in that chart the first coming of Christ, all right? You have the first coming of Christ. We talked about that. He came and he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come? I'm sorry? To show the Father, all right? He came to glorify the Father, John 17 says, and he did, right? He did glorify the Father, the Bible says also he came to do what? He just predicted it here in this chapter. What did he do? He came to suffer. He came to die. He was buried. He rose again. All right? Because there had to be a payment for sin. You know what you love about that doctrine, that, that substitutionary doctrine, is that, is that Jesus Christ was the only one. Now listen to me. He was the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God. 1 John 2, 2, the only one, all right? Well, then you have the church age, and the church age begins in Acts chapter 2, all right? So we still live in that age, all right? We live in the church age. Well, then the next event on the calendar of our Lord is the rapture, all right? The rapture is discussed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It's discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the rapture? Rapture is what? The taking away of the church, all right? The Lord Jesus will come in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us, and he will receive his church to himself. Um, if you want to read some really encouraging verses, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, man, it is right there. In fact, you know, verse 18 is often left out in discussion. And you know what Paul writes at the end of that section after he describes the rapture? He says, therefore, do what? Comfort one another with these words. Aren't you glad to know this, isn't it? I'm glad. Man, listen, I feel sorry for those post-millennialists, mate, that that there's going to be this state of utopia, that everything's getting better and better. Man, not the way I'm looking at it. Is it getting better and better? No, it's getting worse and worse. And listen to me, guys. These deceivers, these mockers, as it relates to this event, they're out there too. There are many, many people that do not believe in the rapture. But you know what? 
they want to lump Israel and the church together. This is a whole long discussion and we won't go there. They want to say, well, the church has replaced Israel. Really? Where? Scripture and verse. Hasn't happened. So the Lord has two distinct programs, one for Israel, one for the church. It's clearly seen in the Scriptures. And the Bible tells us he's coming for those who are in Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, then you have subsequent to the rapture of the tribulation period. Now, if you want to read about that, you go to Revelation chapter 6 uh, through chapter 19. And you're going to see it's an awful time on earth. Now, we think it's bad now. You go through there. I know some of you are taking uh, that in the ladies' class. It's, I don't know if y'all have got to chapter 6 yet. But from chapter 6 to chapter 19, ugh. You look at it and you say, man. You know, people say, is that really going to happen? Well, all I know to do is say the Bible says it. It's going to happen. See, you can't do what some people want to do. Some people want to go, well, you know, I really like that John 3 verse. You know that John 3 verse that for God so loved the world, but, but I'm not real crazy about that book of Revelation and nobody can understand it. But aren't you glad to know that it's not man that's our teacher. It is the Spirit of God. So, you have this great tribulation period and then at the end of the tribulation period, guys, mm, mm, Go with me to, to I wasn't going to do, go with me to, to Revelation 19. All right, if you're taking the ladies' class, I know y'all aren't even close to chapter 19. So by the time y'all get there, you'll forget about this. Chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, right? Because, um, do you know, Peter's about, he, he speaks about the coming of the Lord. He and he uses this term power and we get our word dynamite from that word. And so the the second coming of Christ, when he comes to earth to establish his kingdom is described as this time of of wonderful power. Uh, In fact, um, you stay in Revelation 19. I want you to listen to how powerful this time's gonna be. I'll get to Revelation 19 in just a second. Listen to these words in 2 Thessalonians the second chapter. And Paul writes, and then that lawless one who is the Antichrist, that lawless one will be revealed with whom the Lord, listen to this, will slay with the breath of his mouth. Done. I just love the way the Lord, I mean, when he does it, it's like instant. Done. He spoke creation. Done. You know, the the disciples are in the boat and the the waves are crashing in over the boat. And you think about all those things that are going on in in, in our lives and, and, and all that stuff that's crashing. And the Lord says, peace be still. Done. (laughs) Uh, We're so used to things taking time. When the Lord says it, it's done. So, you come to Revelation 19, look at this. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
and his eyes are a flame of fire. That's that judgment piece. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Look at verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen. Oh, who are those people clothed in fine linen? Who are these armies? Us, the church. You say, I can't ride a horse. (laughs) I can't either. One day we will. The Bible says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, wine and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And at the end of the tribulation period, there'll be the battle of Armageddon, and boom, here comes the Lord. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will what? He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hey guys, that is going to be an event. And you and I get to witness that. And I'm going, man, Peter got a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Y'all want to stay till 12.30 today? (laughs) He describes his coming, right? Peter does in 2 Peter. He describes it. He says, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I really like that bottom little definition there of coming because the word emphasizes a person's presence. I, I just like that right um i think we can illustrate that like you know it's one thing to write a letter and and it's one thing to text and and it's one thing to even skype and all that kind of stuff but man when i see someone face to face right and the bible says one day i'm going to see my lord face to face in all his glory I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. I mean, I lay all day in your bed and try to... I can't imagine that. Because I don't deserve to be in his presence. But he's going to allow that. Because of what Jesus Christ did for me. His righteousness. So, you have this powerful coming that Peter is speaking about. So you go from Peter's testimony... Right? We didn't follow myths, these concocted stories. Man, we were following Christ. He says, when we made known to you the revelation, right, of Christ. And so he says, we didn't follow fables. That was his testimony. What was his message? His message concerned the the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, I want to give this to you before we wrap up this morning. The third point that Peter makes, he says, is Peter's experience. He talks about his experience, All right, notice verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. All right, that's his testimony. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the message. And here's his his experience. But it wasn't his alone, as we're going to see next week. We're going to go to that Mount of Transfiguration. 
He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his glory, of his splendor. That's what the word means, of his greatness. You know, the definition of an eyewitness is, refers to a spectator, or one who is able to see with their eyes someone or something. You know, I shared with you last week that unfortunately I was a spectator. And I got to see this, this, this awful game and, and a bunch of pigs getting taken down. It was terrible. They were being suffocated, all right? That's what was happening. I was an eyewitness to that. And then yesterday I had to be an eyewitness again to a massacre. I saw it with my eyes. And that's what Peter's saying. He says, we saw with our eyes his majesty, his splendor, his glory. You know, eyewitnesses, are a very important part of Scripture, being an eyewitness. Um, I want to close with this verse that um, you're familiar with, but I want you to go there because it's very important. This is another, another doctrine that is disputed. 1 Corinthians 15. Can you turn there for just a minute as we close uh, together? 1 Corinthians 15. Peter in this section talks about, or, or excuse me, Paul in this section talks about the importance of eyewitnesses. Chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Peter writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now notice this, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Now notice this, and after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And notice what Paul says, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The resurrection is disputed. There are those who mock us. Listen, Easter time, I was thinking about this. I'll close with this. Easter time, just like Christmas time, it is so materialistic. I mean, there's just so much emphasis on what the world has to offer. And I'm not against giving gifts. And if you want to hunt an egg, that's fine by me. But what I am against is believers being distracted to the point of forgetting what the most important thing is. Is that okay? Because we are certainly reminded of, especially, boy, after Halloween. You know, I mean, I went into Walmart yesterday. They they already have all their stuff, right? All that. And I'm thinking, there's nothing. My wife loves to decorate the house, and I'm all for that. That's wonderful. But the emphasis at Christmas is the birth of our Savior, right? And, and I'm, okay, you want to hide eggs and share? Man, I listen up, I'm fine, I'm all right with that. I used to look for that golden egg all the time, right? But the bottom line is this. We celebrate Easter for what purpose? To celebrate the resurrected Christ. And guys, listen, these believers, these believers that Peter was writing to, man, they feel suffocated because they're being attacked 
by people who are saying there is no second coming it's a fable it's a myth just like everything else and we can stand here today because we have the full revelation of the Lord and say no it's not it's the absolute truth because God said so all right let's pray together Lord um this is a powerful section of scripture it's one that um there's just so much in there And as we're going to see, as we're going to go to this event called the Transfiguration, we're going to see what took place on that mountain. (laughs) There was a lot that went on. A lot of, really a lot of message for us to consider. And what Peter's doing, he, he is building his case. He's saying, look, we have people, you have people that are mocking you, but I want you to know I saw Christ in his glory. But even, man, even as great as that experience was, For Peter and James and John, he's going to tell them, hey, we have the prophetic word more sure. (laughs) That's an amazing statement. Lord, help us to know that your word is powerful and it's sharp and it penetrates. And Lord, help us to know, just practically speaking, we're on the right side. We're on the right team. And Lord, those that are out in our culture who are taking shots at your word, Lord, help us to know that the best defense we have is not any outside source, but it's your word. Your word proves your word over and over and over again. Help us to be students so that we might be ready to defend the truth of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.